word uh, with you and as we actually look into it together. Uh, it's not about what I have to say. It's really about what God has to say. And uh, in God's providence, he brought a, a couple of very special people here this morning. Um, people have had a, a huge impact on my life, on my family's life. And uh, so I actually took the spur of the moment and uh, opportunity to ask Dan if he would care to uh, come up and share anything that was on his heart. I know that, you know, we've been following your guys' um, journey, even if it's from afar a little bit, and how God has worked uh, through you guys. And um, for those of you, there might be a fair number of you that are here that don't know who I'm talking about. So Dan Stone, why don't you come on up? And Dan Stone was a, a pastor here uh, for many years, um, and... Uh, wonderful friend and mentor to me for sure and so Dan I'm just going to give you the mic and I'll be quiet which um, I'm not always real good at but I'll give it a try anyway wow nice to be here is it on yep. all right um, yeah Mark kind of surprised me a little bit I don't do a lot of preaching anymore but I still do a lot of talking. And I'm okay with that. Thank you for the worship uh, worship team today. And uh, I was reading this morning in the book of Second Thessalonians. I thought I would turn there with you. I don't know if you. Uh, I don't know if you are uh, versed in some of the things that were happening in Asia Minor and in the Middle East at the time of the writing of the book of Second Thessalonians, but the, the people in Thessalonica were under quite a bit of stress and difficulty. And uh, in the first chapter, following his greetings, Paul says to the Thessalonians, Thessalonians, sorry, he says, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. Listen to this. For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. I did our Christmas card this week. Some of you go, yeah. He's always better late than never, I guess. Um, you know, and uh, one of my first lines was, um, it's been kind of a rough year. Uh, but you, you're all well aware of that. We all have been in kind of a rough year, haven't we? It's just, uh, I mean, why don't you... Now, why don't you just let me go through a few things for you from our perspective. Um, I just want to stop for a second and just say hi, Alex. So good to see you. <laughs> Alex and I spent some time traveling the world, didn't we? Nice to see you. So... As you know, I like coaching. 
I've enjoyed coaching for years. When I got down to my, back to my hometown, softball coach down there found out that I had coached softball up here in Chewila, and he asked me if I'd come and help him. So as spring started to roll around, we're talking softball, right? And we, you know, we, we're the two-time defending state champions, and we were looking forward to a, a third year of great opportunity, and our seniors were excited, and, you know, but I digress. I'd been praying for a long time about what, what God was asking me to do in my life. I'm a, I'm a small farmer. I grow dryland wheat. When I left uh, Addy New Life Christian Center as a senior pastor in 2009, I knew that I was going home. I didn't know all the reasons. Two months later, my father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, and I took over the operation of the farm. Uh, it was a very difficult time. Uh, you know, it was what I call a slow goodbye. Um, a slow goodbye. He died in 2014, and uh, so I've been operating the family farm since 2009. Um, at that time, when I left Addie New Life, I really felt the Lord was saying that it was time for me to speak deeper into the culture and the politics and the social issues of our nation. And so I began getting involved in politics and uh, ran to be a pre PCO, a precinct committee officer. And that was my most successful election, let me just let you know. It was like 98 to 2 I won that election in the town of Elmira. Things didn't go so well after that for a while. Um, but I, but I really wanted to be able to speak into a culture that I saw just a lot of darkness over the last 20 years, beginning to just kind of come in like a flood and, and, and felt that, that uh, you know, a lot of that happened while my generation was in leadership and kind of felt a little bit like a failure. And so I said, I'm going to, I'm going to get ran for the legislature, came in fourth out of four guys in the primaries. That was exciting. A legislator re re resigned uh, under, under pressure, and people said, you need, you can, you're a shoe-in. You run, you go for that position. I went for it. All the, the local grassroots uh, conservatives Voted me the number one selection to go to the state legislature. Comes down to three people. It goes before the county commissioners of four counties, and I was the first one out as they were deciding on who was going. I was all packed up. Car was full of clothes. I was heading to Olympia. Had my place to stay all ready, and it was over. And I went, God, what is, what is going on here? And uh, so I just uh, really began to just really speak in churches about the need for Christians to really see that they are called to love their neighbors and be more involved in, in politics and cultural affairs and, uh, and really trying to in, in encourage people to do that. In the mix of that, a county commissioner re, uh, let people know that he was retiring and uh, people were pushing me to run against the guy that was appointed ahead of me to the legislature. They were 
pushing me to run for county commissioner, and it really became a matter of prayer and trying to figure out what God is saying. And eventually I had decided in December, January, that I was going to run for the county commissioner in Grant County. And uh, so I announced on February 15th, and this was the beginning of, you know, just, just COVID just starting to, to come in. And, and uh, my wife and I came up here that day for a funeral in Chewila, and I, I, I did the funeral for a, a good old friend, uh, Dan McDowell. And, uh, and we drove to Moses Lake, and I announced my candidacy at a large gathering there. Two weeks later, we found out that Sandy had cancer. I'm going, okay, for one thing, I know why I didn't choose to go to Olympia if that was if I was going to run for that. At least I can be at home and sleep in my own bed and I can be with her. But I also just created a whole lot of controversy in my soul. Am I to, in the midst of this affliction, remember I just read the word affliction. In the midst of this affliction, am I supposed to still do this? And she said, you are not. You are not quitting this campaign. We went through quite a trial with Sandy's. She lost a lot of weight. It was seven weeks from the time of her diagnosis till her first treatment of any kind. So frustrating. Kids were just flipping out. Uh, they were struggling with um, this whole process. COVID probably contributed to it. Um, and, uh, you know, but we finally began treatment um, in March. I was starting to do field work. Sandy was in treatment. She'd lost about 45 pounds. I, I thought, my wife looks like she's going to die. And uh, softball was canceled. Our seniors didn't get to play another game of their high school career. We are the reigning champions three years in a row, though. No, you know, there is a positive side to it even though he didn't play a game. <laughs> Got to look on the silver lining, don't you? All you athletes out there. I went out to the field one day. Sandy helped me move my tractor over to another field, and she was sitting in the, in the uh, service truck because I really didn't want her to do anything. She just sitting in the service truck waiting for me to get done. And I dropped a harrow into my foot, which is a spike that's about the size of your small finger, and it went right into my foot about an inch inch and a half. Didn't go clear through Ed Talbot, but uh, it was slightly painful. I jerked it off of my foot. I hobbled over to the pick. I said, we got to go to the hospital. My daughter Lily was pregnant. Very troubled pregnancy. Just about lost that baby at 20 weeks. Had an incompetent cervix. And Ezra's here today, healthy, praise God. But it was bed, she was bedridden for a while. She was home ridden. It was a struggle for her. It was tough times. Harvest came. My, my, my uncle came out to the field one day, drove truck. And then uh, I, had, I had got somebody else to drive my combine because I was campaigning. But I, but he quit that. He quit the next day. My uncle did. Went to his son and said, "Hey, I'm done. I can't do it anymore." 
Next day, I went out to the field. I says, I, I, I went out to the farm, and I said, I, I climbed up on the on the com two steps because I wanted to talk to my cousin. I wanted to see how he was doing with this. His dad just drops him, drops, and just says, I'm not doing it anymore. And we had to scramble and get my son-in-law out there. And I climbed two steps. He goes, hey, I'm done up here. Just shut the fuel off. And so I reached over to shut the fuel off. That's the last thing I remember because I went off that combine two steps up onto my back, cold, out cold, spent the day in the hospital, suffered with my back for, for two months, literally just, I mean, this stuff just keeps going on and on. I'm going to talk about how, how much more affliction, you know, do we go through? And, uh, and so, uh, you know, we struggled through a campaign season. We struggled through these afflictions. And then the Monday before Thanksgiving, I was, I was leading in the race, but the count was pretty close. And uh, we went to a follow-up with Sandy's, with Sandy's uh, surgeon. And her latest CAT scan showed that her cancer is progressing. We thought we were done. We thought it was, we thought we were on the victory side. But more lesions on the liver, tumor under the diaphragm, more, more, uh, more lymph nodes expanding. So we're still in a battle. To some people, I would say, well, that's pretty hopeless. That's pretty negative. Don't live that way. There's always hope. Because we serve the God of all hope. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians who were in pretty desperate difficulty. We boast about you in the churches of God. For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. What are you enduring? What are you enduring that you want to throw up your hands in the air and go, I'm done? Don't do it. Because there's somebody that needs to see your steadfastness and your faith. Somebody needs to see that God is bigger than you are. If you think that your afflictions are supposed to be handled by you, you know, I hear this stupid statement sometimes. Stupid. God won't give you more than you can handle. I go, that's stupid. Because God will give you more than you can handle. He'll allow more than you can handle because he wants to show you that he's the one that can handle it. We get a lot of stuff that we can't handle. Come on. You'll try to handle it and you'll mess it up major. You need to let God handle it. Sometimes he won't handle it like you want him to handle it. Yeah. Let it go. Because the all-loving God of the universe, the one who knows you better than you know yourself, who cares more about your family than you care about them, he's in charge. 
and he'll do the right thing. It may not look cool. It may not look like what you want it to look like. But I hope you know that he knows better than you about this stuff. At the end of that book, Second Thessalonians 3.16, Paul closes it out by saying, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. We are in tumultuous times. It was mentioned during worship. We've had our share of affliction, but we're in tumultuous times as a country, as a state. We're in difficult times. I don't know how dark the darkness will be if things go a real negative way, but let me just tell you that he's the Lord of peace. Seek his peace in the midst of tumult. And he will be with you all. He will be. He'll walk right through it with you. And I'm excited to see some of the things that he'll do in all of our lives as believers in the midst of this. You're a little freer up here than we are where we live. We're like, we're like, don't sing, just a soloist. Follow the governor's order. And Aubrey sits in church like this, you know. And, and uh, not exactly my idea of a great, great fun. But uh, if that's as worse as it gets, that's as bad as it gets, I have a feeling it could get worse. I wrote a note to myself after I read that scripture. In difficult or tumultuous times, choose peace. Realize the Prince of Peace has you. He's got this. He's with you. You are here right now. Can I just say that about you right here in this room right now? You are here right now with purpose for such a time as this. Grab your purpose. Do your purpose. Live your purpose. God's got you here right now for such a time as this. Live your purpose to the glory of God. That's what I plan on doing. That's what my beautiful wife and I plan on doing. She's here right now for a purpose. And we're going to live it to the glory of God. To the last day, to the last breath, whether it's 25 years from now or six months, we don't know. But we're going to grab that purpose. What's your purpose? I've got a new job in a few weeks. Scared to death and excited trying to live my purpose. Do it. God bless you. Thank you.
Is that better? I almost think we just close in prayer. <laughs> should we just close? Should we vote on it? No, I'm just so. Uh, I really appreciate that, and I appreciate, um, you know, there's just certain times where stopping and in our tracks and uh, listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit is, uh, it's important all the time, I get it, but there's times like this morning when I greeted Dan, went and was doing my things, and the Lord's speaking to me, I'm like, all right, I'm going back. And uh, thank you for that uh, encouragement, that update, admonition to, to, to keep pressing on. And in a lot of ways, that's where we find ourselves as we've been studying through the book of First Peter. Is the idea that we, that we keep pressing on. And as I've said in the last several weeks, that <clears throat> Peter was writing to the, to the, the same dynamic that, that in the culture that what... Uh, Dan just spoke about. There was trials, there was tribulations that the believers were going through, there was persecutions, they were being harassed, they were being manipulated by the Roman government. And Of course, last week we talked about, we looked, we kind of ended through the study in Second Peter, the portion, the first half, where God is really revealing through Peter the privileges that we have as a Christian. Or as I put it this way, our heavenly identity. We come to grips with, with who we are according to what the Word of God says, and we see that we really are reassigned at salvation a heavenly identity. Some of those bullet points, not quite up on the screen, but some of those bullet points of our heavenly identity, or Peter calls us a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, uh, a, a group of people. I, I wrote in my notes this that you were a nobody and now a somebody. And that's not just for you, that's for me. Once not a people, but now we're the people of God, the Word says. People that had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And then we looked at the first three of Christian uh, duties that we have which I labeled kind of really our earthly mission. And I made a strong point last week in, in this regard, is that how we act is always greater than what we say. How we act, how we behave, how we conduct ourselves, how we carry ourselves, says way more about your identity than really than your words and my words. So we looked at these three duties. By the way... Um, I, try, I decided to, to go back to something that I used to do a long time ago, and that's put a, a fill-in-the-blank bulletin insert. Um, so if you have a pen, if you don't have a pen, we have, we have lots of pens. And so ask for a pen. But uh, you can look at these three duties. We talked about them last week, and so I'm not going to talk about them too much other than to just put a little more context um, along with them. We looked at these duties. The first one that Peter brings out is to abstain from fleshly lusts. Abstain from the fleshly lust. The second one was is that we need to wage war against sin in our lives. We need to wage war against sin in our lives. The worst thing, I brought this up last week, the worst possible thing that can infect the life of a believer 
or infect Christianity in general that we need to be really cognizant of is this idea that we have a quiet peace treaty with sin in our lives. And so you can ask yourselves these questions. Do I? Don't I? And the third one is, is that we have honorable conduct. Honorable conduct. I want to look at one passage real quick. And that's in Titus chapter 2. And I want to bring this up for one reason only is, is that I ask myself some questions. What motivates us to carry out these duties, these Christian duties that, that Peter lists? And it's not just Peter. It's really all the New Testament writers speak in some form or fashion. I kind of pick out Peter and Paul as two. The idea out of, for motivation in chapter 2 of Titus, we'll just look real quick at verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And it's that grace, verse 12, that Paul says that teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. Don't you love the continuity between the biblical writers? That he would purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. And so it's God's grace, really, that's the motivator to live a godly life. It's God's grace that's our motivator as we're looking into these duties that we have as a believer Remember we said two weeks ago that these duties are, they, they follow our identity. I think there's purpose in Peter's, Peter's writings in, in, in regard to that he talks about our identity, who we are in Christ, then what we do when we're in Christ, not the other way around. So that there's no mistake that it's not a, a, a method of earning anything from God. That he changes our identity and then gives us a new purpose. So I love that continuity that the apostles had as the Holy Spirit led them in teaching. And as Peter continues on, we're going to see even more unity of thought between the apostles. That's put on full display. That puts on a full display of Christian attitude when it comes to the various areas of human interaction. Uh, In that light, let's jump into our passage real quick. And I'm going to move real quick. If you don't get all of your uh, blanks filled in, you can see me afterwards. I'll give you a copy of my sermon notes. And uh, you can have all the cliff notes. That's fine with me. So let's jump into 1 Peter chapter 2. Right there, verse 13. We left off in verse 12. But verse 13, Peter says, Therefore, continuing thought from all that was in front of that, therefore submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king supreme or to the governor's, as those who are sent by him to punish evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as, <clears throat> as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. And the fourth duty out of 
1 Peter chapter 2, it's just simply this. It's to be a good citizen. To be a good citizen, right? That we have a responsibility before God to be a good citizen. And Peter lays out a fundamental principle for every Christian, and that's simply to be under authority. There's a lot of angst when it comes to the word authority, and there's a lot of angst that comes when we say the word submission. If there's a welling up that happens in people, then there's probably something that's noteworthy to jump in there and look at and examine in our own hearts and our own lives. The flesh does not want to submit. The flesh does not want to come in under authority. It's opposed to it. It's been opposed to it from the beginning. It's exactly the reason why Adam and Eve fell in the first place. Doubts entered, flesh takes over, and boom, we're going sideways. And nothing has changed until today. We have those same propensities. Paul, talking about con consistency of uh, ideas, Paul also writes about the same principle, most notably, obviously, in Romans chapter 13. I'll just read a little bit for you. It says, Let every soul be subject, subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist the ordinance of God, and those who resist bring judgment on themselves. For the rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do, you, <clears throat> do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are due, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Peter and Paul wrote these verses in the same time in history, to the same time in history where all of this chaos was going on. And in the midst of all this chaos for the Christ followers, for the Christians in that day, there was one thing that was constant for everybody, whether you were or weren't a Christian. And that is, is that in that day, Rome had absolute authority. Absolute control, absolute authority. And they went about harassing and persecuting, as I mentioned earlier, manipulating Christians for the sole purpose to get them to bow the knee to Caesar. And they didn't do it. And the more of them that didn't do it, the more of them didn't do it. And there was a snowball effect that worked actually in the opposite direction than what Rome was trying to aim for. Nevertheless, Governments are instituted by God and are given rightful authority to rule over people. Notice how I worded that very carefully. They're instituted by God and they're given rightful authority to rule over people. And according, really, you can boil it down to this, that, that government's role, and, and I'm talking to somebody that's, <laughs> you're going to be taking this role here in just a few weeks, and, and it's not that Dan doesn't know all this. It's actually for these reasons for these reasons that God, I think, has put this on Dan's heart. 
Government's role in, in its essence is to punish wrongdoers, to punish evil, and to reward or commend those that do right. It's a basic biblical mandate that God institutes for government and for Christians to follow. There is a caveat. There is an unless. We have to make sure that we properly understand the unless part of where we're going here. Unless the government commands something that contradicts the word of God. If the government commands us, or anybody in authority commands us to do, and we're all under authority, let's be real about that, some form or fashion, you're under authority. So if a command comes down, if a suggestion comes down, if I ask my wife who's under my authority to lie specifically for my benefit or for our benefit, she has every scriptural right to say, sorry, I'm not going to do it. And she's doing me a favor by doing that. She's, she's bringing accountability into my life by doing that. Right? She's under my authority, but she knows that that authority then goes crosswise with what the Bible says. So when the Bible talks about submission, when it talks about authority at the human level, whatever those relationships are, it never presents submission in absolute terms. It never pre presents submitting to whatever authority in 100% absolute terms. And here's the reason why. Our first responsibility is to obey and submit to God. That's our first responsibility. Obey and submit to the Lord. The second one is, is that Jesus demands our undivided loyalty and obedience. Some verses there, I believe, that will come up on the screen. But Romans 1, 4 through 6, Matthew 28, 18, Acts 2, 36, and Acts 10, 36. Jesus demands our undivided loyalty and obedience. The reality is, is that's where we struggle. We struggle in that because we become like this and kind of we have this duplicitous mindset a lot of times, or at least wise we're tempted to have it bipolar in our loyalties. And the Bible's full of examples of people putting, the third one is, is the Bible's full of examples of God putting government over, <coughs> God of, <laughs> I'll reread it. The Bible's full of examples of people putting God over government. There's an interesting that we talked about a couple years ago, and it's an interesting read if you're in Exodus chapter 1, verse 17, the midwives were told by the Pharaoh to kill all the baby boys because he had heard that there was a, a uh, you know, a savior, uh, you know, somebody was going to come and free the people. And, and so it's just easy to just wipe out a whole group of people in hopes that you get one. Herod the Great did the same thing in the, the uh, time of Jesus when he was being born. Just wipe them out. Just take them out. It's an interesting thought, actually. I was talking to somebody the other day. Can you imagine that Jesus didn't grow up with any kids that were his same age? Any boys that were his same age? Heavy price to, price to pay in a community for being God's selected one, right? But these midwives in Exodus chapter 1, uh, they lied about keeping those babies alive. When they were drawn to account, and I know Carrie and I had talked about this, it's kind of intriguing. There's no, uh, there's no penalty. 
There's no drawing up short for those Hebrew midwives that essentially refused to obey a wicked, evil command. Uh, I'm not saying that we take that and say it's okay to lie. I'm just saying that that's a, a point in the scripture where uh, there was a protection of the innocent and a, uh, a plan to, to come against an evil plan. A few more occasions in the Bible. I just listed a few, but the Bible's really full of these examples of people putting God over government. Daniel 6, story of Daniel refusing to worship the king. Acts 12, where Peter's in prison for preaching. Acts 16, where Paul and Silas are in prison for preaching. There's an abundance of these occasions where people were in the right to say no to the government. We don't make any bones about what we're doing here. I wish every believer would examine the freedoms that they have biblically and say, all right, God, what do you, what, what, what do you lead? How, how, how do you want me to walk out who you're calling me to be? And that takes on some different forms. I get that. There's some flexibility there. But Jesus does demand our undivided loyalty. Peter goes on to say, talk about, there's, a, there's an abundance of foolishness that you may put to, put to silence the talk of ignorant and foolish men. Verse 15. There's a lot of foolishness in our culture today. A lot of craziness. And Peter tells us that our good actions, actually not our words, our good actions will quiet that foolish talk. It's how we conduct ourselves. It's how we operate in this society, in this culture. So that we're rightly motivated to be a good citizen. God created government to punish, just a little recap, God created government to Punish evil, reward good, verse 14. God uses our display of good actions to silence foolish talk, verse 15. And God gives us freedoms to show that we are under his constraint, verse 16. The key to understanding biblical freedom <clears throat> is simply this. We don't use sin. We don't use our freedoms for sin. We use our freedoms to serve. Do we get that? We look there in Second Peter at that piece. Right there, verse 16, as free, Peter's talking about the believer, as free, yet not, not, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice. There should be a check in our heart there. There should be a, the Holy Spirit should be screaming in our head if we're about to use the Bible Right? In a wrong way. Using those freedoms that God gives His people to do something that we shouldn't do. So we don't use freedom to sin. Rather, we use it to serve. So as yet free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. See, the reason why we're given these freedoms is to serve. Is to serve is to serve. That's our role. 
Peter gives us this summary. He goes on to elaborate about these same concepts in a different area of the believer's walk. He says in verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongly, for what credit is it if when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you're good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now having returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It's a great passage. The fifth piece that Peter brings out is simply to be a good employee. We have a duty as Christians to be a good employee. There's a parallel passage out of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 and 8. Paul says, work as unto God with a good heart. Peter elaborates on the justice in the workplace here in this passage. And similar to other areas of submission, if we suffer for wrongdoing, those are simply consequences for our actions. Do we understand that? So if if you're doing something wrong in the workplace and you get rang up about it, you get a slip, you get, you know, reprimand, you get whatever. If you're doing something wrong and you get caught, those are just simply consequences for our actions. That's just the natural course of how life goes. That's the way it is in our families. Kids, when you're disobedient and you get caught, hey, that's the way it rolls. Pay the due. Pay the consequences, right? For those of you who don't know, we're recently, uh, what's the word? Empty nesters. So while I'm talking about this, just a year ago, that guy was in our house and was still kind of grinding away. Now he's over there giggling because now he's a man, he's a man in authority of his own house. He's thinking, ha, 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 I can't wait. I seen the look on his eyes. I had to speak to it. The difference is if we suffer for wrong, we endure the consequences. If we suffer for what's good, that's a good thing. Our culture does not believe that that's a good thing. Let's just be honest about where our world is today. They do not see that there's something virtuous in suffering. If we're doing something that's right and we end up suffering for it, that that's a good thing. They don't get it. They don't want to get it. They want to try to avoid it in any form or fashion, whatever that means. But suffering for good is a good thing, the Word says. It's a Jesus thing. So ultimately, Jesus is our, the, the, the ultimate example of enduring unjust treatment. 
He's the example of enduring unjust treatment. In a culture full of political posturing, finger-pointing, blame-shifting, accusations, slander, backbiting. I'm not talking about today. I am talking about today. I'm talking about the fact that in that culture, Jesus was perfect. And he's our example for today because ultimately nothing has changed. The dynamics of mankind, the struggle with sin, the battle between good and evil, nothing has changed in 2,020 years. Jesus spoke the truth and he let the truth speak. He spoke the truth, said, here it is. You want to know? I'm telling you the way it is. Here it is. And he just let the truth speak for itself. In doing that, there's kind of two categories. You can really boil the gospel and the, the interactions between Jesus and people down to two categories. There was people that came to Jesus in humility, in a genuineness of wanting to know, who are you? What are you teaching? What's real? What's not real? And they came in humility. And to those people, Jesus met with love and mercy and tenderness, compassion. But to the people that wanted to come and trap him up, trip him up, try to make him look like a fool, try to get him in trouble, to those people, he just took them to the Old Testament. He took them to the law. He said, here you go. This is what it says. Don't like it? Well, that's up to you. Deal with it. <laughs> It was my paraphrase of, you know, four books of the Bible, but in all of that, though, he was our example, the ultimate example, the one that we are to pattern ourselves after. As we walk out these duties of being a believer, we should be walking them out in the same likeness and the same pattern and the same way that Jesus walked them out. And so he spoke the truth. We need to speak the truth. We need to let the truth speak for the, itself. To quote a uh, local old wise guy, and I don't say wise guy in the meaning of like the mafia wise guys, but just an old guy that's really wise that is normally sitting over here and hasn't been sitting over here for a while because of their own personal health and safety, which is fine. But uh, years ago, Jim Kern told me, if the Bible offends you, then you probably need to be offended. If the Bible offends you, if the truth of what the Word of God says is offensive, and for many people in those interactions with Jesus or with the apostles, they were frustrated and offended. And maybe they needed to be so. And I know when the Word of God, when I've like been struggling with it, or maybe it says something that seems a little in my face, maybe I need to be shook up a little. Maybe I need to be offended. And then fold back into what the Word says and who Christ is in my life and in your life. The third point there is that out of this passage, if you look at verse 23, speaking of Christ, Peter says, Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. When Jesus suffered, when Jesus suffered, he committed himself to the Father. That's a great illustration that Dan and Sandy have brought to us 
No knowledge that they were going to come. But they're two Christ followers in the midst of suffering and trial and tribulation. Their response, what he's demonstrated for us this morning, is that they're committing themselves to the Father's plan. Wherever that takes them. Whatever that means and for however long that God's plan is good. He does mean good for us. Not evil for those who are in Christ. He means good. He means there's going to be a good end. However, and that was Sandy's verse, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Right? So whatever happens, it doesn't really matter because God's plan is good. We win either way. It should bring comfort. It should bring encouragement into our lives. See, Peter brings out a couple of really important principles as he goes through this. Verse 24 says, He he who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we might, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. There's a connection here between freedom and healing. Because Peter goes on to say, by whose stripes you were healed. The only way that we can truly enjoy physical freedom is to embrace the spiritual freedom that comes with a relationship with Jesus Christ. You guys get that? The only way we can truly enjoy our physical freedoms, freedoms that we have here, is to enjoy them in and through a relationship with Christ. And he connects in this idea of being healed. The only way that we can truly enjoy physical healing is to embrace the spiritual healing that comes with a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why on this side, yeah, it, it really stinks. It's a challenge. It's painful. It might not end the way that we want it to end, but ultimately for the Christ follower, there's ultimate healing. There will be no pain. There will be no sickness. There will be no cancer. So we can enjoy physical healing now or at some point before the Lord. But we enjoy that because of the spiritual healing that Jesus offers while we're here. There's a great conclusion as we conclude today here that Peter writes down. Because I think it gives a great window into the the heart of the believer. It gives a great picture and it ties back to Jesus talking on hillsides and talking in parables and sharing life with a group of dudes, you know, as they walked along, as they got their feet dirty, as they dealt with the Mediterranean heat, as they dealt with the salt air. It gives a great picture, especially for those of us that live in an agronomy, uh, agricultural society. That's the word. For you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Isn't that an awesome picture of who we are? You think about your own life. You think about your own propensity to wander, your own temptations, your own struggles with sin. You, you talk about, you know, and I've 
listen to most of your testimonies, maybe, maybe not all of you guys, but a lot of them, I know your story, I know the background, or I've lived it with you. So we know our own stories. You guys have heard my story. How as a teenager, you know, I'm really starting to drift off. God brought my world crashing down on a big truck wreck in 1990. As sheep wandering, let's face it, we all wander. Sheep going astray. But now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. It's a great picture of who God is in our lives. It's a great picture of Him coming in and as, as we turn back into His invitation to follow Him and Him saying, all right, we're going to regroup. I'm going to give you a new identity. I'm going to give you a new purpose. I'm going to give you a new task. I'm going to give you a new understanding. I'm going to overhaul everything between your ears and what's in your heart. And we're going to go this way. Because I'm going to oversee you. I'm going to shepherd you your whole life. I'm going to put you in a community of faith. I'm going to lead you through really difficult places. I'm going to lead you through real rocky ground. Are you going to trust me? Are you going to stay with me? Are you going to bail out? I'm not saying that God asks those questions. He's offering the perfect scenario even though from our perspective, it doesn't always look perfect. It looks rocky. It looks rough. It looks dangerous. We have missionaries that we support, young men and women, some of them related to us. Morgan will be here this week. Yeah. This week. Morgan's considering and being led by the Lord to go into some real dangerous spots in the future and missions. We have other people, like I mentioned, Blake Donnelly, Blake and Sammy. They're gearing up to head to Thailand. He's already been to Syria once in the last few months. And they're going back again. Why? Because Jesus is shepherding their soul. They're saying, all right, we're yours. And we're here today saying in worship and in praise and in reading the word, all right, Lord, we're yours. We're going to follow you. Because we're identifying with you and we're going to do what you've asked us to do. We're going to do the duties that you've asked us to do with a joyful heart. We're not going to do it blindly. We're going to study your word. We're going to examine, is, is something that's being put before me in the culture, is it putting itself over God? If it is, we're going to slide it out of the way so that God is elevated in our lives, right? We're going to demonstrate in being our souls being shepherded as we walk with the Lord. We're going to demonstrate the goodness of God in our workplace so that other people that talk foolishly about God, they'll stop and pause and say, wait a minute, that's not true of him. What I'm saying is not true of her. So what's different about them? Why, why, why are they different? Why do they, why do they conduct themselves in such a way? One of my, I will say this, one of my current heroes in all the chaos in our culture is the governor of South Dakota. Like, I'm ready to buy a few acres in South Dakota, just say. I. We were just there. We were there. We, 
you guys don't know this. Can I tell a fast story? We drove, the Carlson boys and I, we drove from our place to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, picked up some bin jacks, drove diagonally back across to southwest Nebraska, tore down two grain bins, then back and back. I love South Dakota. Actually, I like Nebraska too. But I really like South Dakota. But one of my current, one of the reasons why I like South Dakota is because <clears throat> they have a governor who's serious about her faith, Christy Nome. I wouldn't say that she's a perfect person. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying of what I've read about her and have heard from her directly, she's serious about her faith. She's walking the halls of, of Congress there in, in South Dakota on an early morning basis praying for every single leader that would show up to govern that state. Praying that God would you know, speak to them, God would use them. She's leading, and, and, and she, she just keeps her head out of the waves. It's crazy. And she's gotten tons of feed pushback and, and trouble, and, and she's been called all kinds of vile things through all that's gone on in the last year. And she just keeps her eyes on Jesus, and she keeps her head up out of the water, and just keeps going, just keeps leading. And to me, that's an inspiring person. That's an inspiring way to conduct themselves and to, to, to handle their business, to do what God has called them to do in the time and the place. And we are. We're called to be God's people to this generation. And to conduct ourselves and carry ourselves in such a way that would reflect His goodness and glory in our lives. Daniel, will you and the worship team come on up? We're going to close with the song of worship. We're glad that you're here today. We're glad that you came to, to give glory to the Lord this morning. Uh, glad for these God moments of special occasions. And uh, just pray that you guys just have a great week. We are going to take a pause this coming Sunday from our study through Peter and uh, talk about the coming king, talk about uh, Christmas, which would just be a week or so away beyond that. But... Uh, won't you consider as we close and as we walk out of here today, A, who you are in Christ, and B, how that affects how you live. Amen? Stand as we worship together.